0: Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of CapGen, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions that have been posed to us by our clients and friends in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go anywhere investors. So in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So, Robert, we've talked over these uh, episodes about how 2022 uh, was very much a story of rising interest rates and therefore rising discount rates and therefore falling valuations. And of course, 2022 was a story of both bonds and uh, equities falling. But we've drawn attention to the fact that that was really the story of 2022 and what we hadn't seen but were watching for in 2023 was uh, earnings to fall and therefore not only would you see discount rates rising and values falling you would also see the e going down Uh, so uh, earning seasons just started Robert what what are we what are we hearing and seeing what are analysts um, leading us to expect from uh, this first of the 2023 quarterly earnings numbers.
1: Yes, I think earnings are certainly going to be quite pivotal. Um, what we've seen, obviously, in markets has been this big liquidity-fueled rally at the start of um, at the start of the year, um, with a lot of the names that were most shorted going up the most. So, arguably, earnings look less important, but really, earnings, as if if we're right, could be a driver to the downside. And what have we seen so far well it's, it's still early days i think this week is quite a pivotal week in the us about a third of the companies are reporting some of the big mega cap tech names are reporting this week uh, and what we're expecting to see is top line uh, revenues uh, to take a hit so that that effect of decreasing demand is going to feed through to growth uh, but also more importantly it's going to be on profit margins and we've already, again, the, the signs of that starting to come down. So really, profit margins in the US were super high in 2021, around 13%. And they're coming down probably around 11%, 11.5%. Um, so we, we are expecting to see that contraction. as a lot of the pressures um, on margins from higher input costs and less of an ability to pass through those increased prices um, to consumers. So I suppose that's where... Uh, We're likely to see the pressure now. Clearly, headline uh, earnings surprises, growth uh, and revenue surprises, still are positive. They're always positive because uh, of the nature of these things. But the actual uh, sort of amount uh, that it's surprising to the upside is much lower than average. Um, So we're already seeing that impact from the earnings so far that that it does look on the negative side. So not a disastrous earnings season. But we're starting to see some of the pressure. And more importantly, it's thinking about what the companies are saying in terms of their forward guidance um, on uh, future layoffs. Again, we've seen some of that on the tech side, but we haven't really seen it on the, uh, on the industrial and some of the other um, consumer-facing names. So future layoffs potentially, talking about potentially the, um, the impact on investment. So again, there, are we going to see investment get pulled back Um, on on the back of or on the expectation of reduced demand. So, I think it's the future messages are pretty important. And at the same time, we're likely to hear less talk about inflation and supply side shortages. So, less talk on that side. That was more the story of last year, more talk this year about uh, margins coming under pressure, uh, financing conditions getting tighter. So, I think that's somewhat of the, the, the setup. And really, we're likely to see earnings come down. We're already seeing the, the peak from last year. Are we at the bottom of the of earnings cycle? Definitely not. But I think, again, the market is always anticipatory, especially with earnings. So, the bottom of the market in terms of prices is never the bottom of the market in terms of earnings recession. But we're still some way to go before that bottom, the earnings recession, which, again, a lot of the good news is priced into the market, which is why we need to be um, somewhat cautious with our positioning going forward. I suppose the one downside at the moment is what we are hoping to see is more differentiation and earnings get rewarded or punished and it becoming more of a stock pickers market. And that's not so much been the case so far this year. So, there's been less evidence of that. Um, some companies, are, certainly on the plus side, there's been less of a bump up if you really surprise to the downside, there can still be a, a bit of a drop, um, but that's somewhat something we we really would rather a market less driven by macro, more driven by fundamentals but at the moment and certainly some of the evidence that's out there um, a lot of the macro news is still driving uh, a lot of the uh,
0: shares and a lot of the company performance if we just um, step back for a moment from the earnings seasons robin just link this a bit into one of the big themes that we've talked about now for uh, uh since we started doing this which is the um the, the political impact of social and economic change, I guess, that's the idea that we've seen rising inequality, uh, we've seen populism, uh, we've seen uh, these, these political responses to the impact of you know, change that's going on, whether that's technology or the, uh, the impact of China and so on. And at the same time, we've noticed that uh, profits, as a percentage of GDP, um, have been at you know historically very very high levels. So, if one in a way steps back a little bit from you know the here and now of um, you know Q4 uh, quarterly earnings being being announced, the the fact that profit margins, as you mentioned, uh, are, are coming under pressure, is perhaps a bit of an inevitable. Consequence of our response to this, you know, rising right inequality and uh, political pressures.
1: Yes, I think there's there's certainly some. Uh, there will be some truth to that in the longer term. I think shorter term, it's that less of the driver. So that could be the the longer term trend of why profit margins may um, decline over a sustained period of time. But at the moment, more of the impetus. Uh, is surrounding those input costs. It's you suddenly faced uh, a pressure from energy prices, labor costs, um, financing costs, suddenly all going up. Uh, And we're really coming into the period where the impact from uh, certainly on the interest rate side, that impact is, is, is getting felt by companies. So I think still it remains more that story short term. Um, And rather, that longer term picture is potentially that headwind uh, for profitability over a sustained period of time. But equally, we should also look geographically. The U.S. is somewhat of of an extreme case. So yes, profit margins are extremely high in the U.S. One of the arguments for the rest of the world is profit margins are actually pretty low uh, in many other regions. Um, Certainly, the rest of the world, Europe, Japan, emerging markets. So, there's more scope for those profit margins there, even if the general tide may face those headwinds from some of the long-term socioeconomic changes. But there's still potential reversion to the mean. Uh, so, even if the mean is re- reducing, if you start at a lower base, it gives you a bit more support. So, I think the, at the heart of it, yes, that's one downside, one uh, negative for, for equity owners in the long run. But it's also a reason why the next 10 years, you w- maybe want to look outside the US uh, for for bargains um, when you're uh, putting together your equity portfolio.
0: Well, moving away from, um, well, uh, focusing from uh, big picture macro to stocks in general to, to a stock in particular, that's uh, that's been in the news over the last few days. So, Microsoft has made a, a multi-billion-dollar investment into OpenAI, the company putting behind um, ChatGPT. So, what exactly is this, and does the? What are your thoughts on the the underlying uh, technology? Is is this um, an investment opportunity longer term? Keeping in mind the distinction we often draw. Uh, on this um, on this podcast, what is a good company and and what is a good a uh, good investment.
1: So I think may, maybe starting with a with a suitably uh, computer generated voice, um, I put the question into uh, Chat GPT itself. So we'll see see what it comes up with. And they say Chat GPT is an AI language model developed by OpenAI. It is a type of language model based on deep learning techniques trained on a massive amount of text data and is capable of generating human-like text. Um, So I suppose, and and it's a good tool. So uh, just putting it aside, that's the sort of answer you can get. And you can have quite a bit of fun with it. So we'll we'll, we'll go into where the fun starts with, but what is it at the heart? Um, Well, yes, it's a chat bot. Uh, So it is AI, but in a form that's actually convenient for for humans because the interaction is via language. Um, So it's it's an AI model um, and... uh, you can put, put uh, questions in there, and you get answers. It can also write computer text. It can it can it can write music. So there's plenty of actual um, things it can do. Um, but I think we start with this is somewhat of uh, the the sort of promo end of of the uh, AI revolution in many ways. This is a great tool that actually catches the the human imagination. Um, And we've certainly seen that in user numbers. So when this was published and put out there, uh, it was one of the fastest uh, new technologies to get to a million users. It was in the matter of days, whereas, you know, going back, uh, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook took a lot longer to get to a million users. So it's really captured the imagination uh, because it's so easy to use and people can uh, have a bit of fun with it. And I think that's the key if we're looking at purely at today, that's actually the key benefit. It, it works as an advert. It's a bit of fun. People can um, try and see what, really what AI yeah, can can do. But underneath, there is a real serious element to this. So, if we take some of the company-specific um, sides, um, why is Microsoft super interested in this? Well, um, the big argument is, could chat GPT be a Google killer? So Google seemed to uh, have this monopoly on search. Everyone uses to Google as a word to actually um, put, uh, go into a search engine. And ChatGPT, in many ways, could be uh, a rival to that. And certainly, Microsoft's banking on that to to a certain degree and hoping to use ChatGPT to to power Bing its search engine uh, and try and uh, sort of capture some of Google's share into the future. And maybe that is the case. And that's certainly a really profitable business and a really great market to be in. Um, And it's got Google scared to a certain degree. A lot of uh, projects have been put on hold and uh, they really want to uh, pay attention to what Microsoft is doing. But I should say Google itself has spent a lot of money and have a lot of uh, sophisticated AI tools themselves. They just haven't made them public. And that in a way, I think when you use ChatGPT, gives you, give you an example. If you try and use it, you put in questions, you'll see some of the limitations. So the, the answers all sound quite plausible, but you, en- you end up with some that are, uh, are termed hallucinations. So actually the, what you're getting back can actually be rubbish. So it might be plausible sounding rubbish. Uh, people have asked for citations of research and you end up with a lot of names that look quite sensible, but a- in actual fact, the, the research doesn't exist. And I suppose that's a, a, a worry because you end up... <laughs> You end up with a situation where um, it's quite hard to tell what's what's uh, true and what's not, and that's why Google's had to be quite um, safe, I think, and have, have not uh, let out many of their models to the public because they've got to be a hundred percent secure in what they're putting out and and not have bugs and not have issues. So I think that's that's one thing to to watch out for. It may be Google's Kodak moment, but actually I think Google's got a lot of um, investment and uh, in this space. I think the second thing on a tech side I would maybe mention is, well, what do these models do? Really, you're putting out computers and you're training it it doesn't know what it's saying. It's all predictive. It's predicting what text to put next, uh, which is kind of amazing. And that sort of it makes you realise uh, some of the limitations. But you put feed lots of text and data in. You train it so human users can train it about what are good answers, what what are not. Uh, you get feedback from uh, the, all the um, the the use of it and and user scores. Was this data useful? Uh, and in that way, the system improves its predictive ability. Um, yeah. And ChatGPT, we fed in, or, or they fed in lots of data from the internet. So, crawling all kinds of rubbish data or not. And I think that's one of the important points about these models. These sophisticated AI models. Um, could be quite widely uh, developed by all the big tech names and could become widely used by lots of different companies. What's important then is what training data and how you train it. So there is an element to model choice. So you see that with some of the answers can be skewed uh, to the preferences um, of the users. For example, ChatGPT doesn't want to do things that uh, it considers uh, dangerous or harmful. Um, uh, or, or uh, inflammatory. So some of those answers are, are forbidden or not not allowed. Um, you do get some of the political biases of, of, of the people training, but also it's the quality of the training data. And that, again, may be why um, Google has a big advantage and some of those other big tech players have advantages, because they just have a, a, a mass of data that consumers have given them that they can feed into these models and improve the quality of the models. And I suppose that that itself gives them a, a sort of one one leg up, but it does show the importance of, of data. So data providers may be a good um, investment into the future and you can have specific data that can be quite valuable, because if you have specific data in a certain field, actually, you can train your model to give much better answers uh, for that particular use. Um but beyond this, is this going to damage the share price of Google or Microsoft? Who's going to be the big winner in this new space? It's hard to tell. It's going The big players, I think, are going to take a lot of the advantage. Um, but AI has a potential to impact lots of different parts of the economy. I mean, th- th- it is limitless, really, in terms of uh, the, the areas that could be affected. And we are in these early stages. So it's hard with your imagination to work out exactly uh, which areas are going to be affected the most. I mean, obviously, you can see. ChatGPT itself can pass uh, Wharton's MBA, I think, it's passed the CFA, it's passed the bar. So certain basic um, question and answers it can do, maybe not so much um, uh, areas where you need a bit more uh, intuition, a bit more creativity. Uh, copywriting is another example. Um but the integration Microsoft could use, having that tool within your Word document when you're trying to write a letter or something, uh, it can save a lot of time. So I think if I was to go back to our sort of macro views, there are going to be winners and losers clearly on the tech side. Uh, but when we think about a lot of the conditions that are inflationary in the world, when we're talking about climate change, about the inequality in the world, the overhang of debt, the monetary and fiscal policies, the working age populations, demographic change, all look quite inflationary. But actually tech is man's big answer, uh, a big source for growth, but also can be quite deflationary. Um, So that's the one, when when we're talking about that inflationary view, why you can't be completely uh, one-sided on the view actually, AI is a big, uh, one of the big components potentially that could drive uh, a deflationary force back into the world and can help us with growth. So actually, it can be a good answer for investors into the future. You do want to be exposed, albeit at the moment, it's hard to pick the winners and losers. And even when we think about the geopolitical side, the big uh, investments in China and the US, this is going to feed that geopolitical tension. So a lot of those trends we talk about, um, who is going to be controlling the tech into the future, Who who's going to make the best benefit of AI uh, is really uh, going to be quite important.
0: Yeah. And I guess to to pick another uh, macro theme from this, if, if the story of the last, um, I don't know, 40 plus years has been... You know the arrival of cheap labor into uh, into manufacturing and low value add services, and the impact on employment and income levels of people in those sectors. Uh, the the, the well educated professionals, um, those holding, you know, degrees, have been largely immune. In fact, have been rather profited from this. Uh, but but in some ways AI is the great challenge. You know, you read about the fact that um, you know AI is a better diagnostic, uh, has more diagnostic skill than your uh, your average um, uh, uh, your average surg- uh, medic or surgeon, and um, AI and these machines can you know make surgical plans better than can a surgeon. So so as you say, there's there there is this sort of disinflationary potential, but also it has this social impact as well, doesn't it?
1: Mm. I mean, even one would say you want to learn uh, coding and be a software developer. Um, actually, when you when you see uh, most software developer jobs today are going to be taken away by AI. Actually, you can create a lot of the coding done directly uh, by by the machine itself. So that's kind of scary. Um, but then you need somebody to train the data. So there will always be new jobs. And I think that's always the, this creative destruction of the economy. Actually, you don't get what too worried about the tech, because there will be new jobs, new avenues um, available. Albeit, I think there are some scary sides. So there's the great potential. But there is also uh, the scary element of where AI will go when it sort of trains and teaches itself so they think that is that's one scary element that we really do need to watch for and it's quite um Difficult when uh, well, OpenAI is a great example. It started when it was open source and wanted to be transparent with the coding and didn't want to be privately owned for profit. It's now for profit company um, on on the main and um, uh, no longer open source and transparent. So there there is worries about who who controls uh, the future um, on on this side. And I think also the other thing that worries me slightly, uh, but I, I again you all everything the worry you can get with, uh, get back to is, is try to find out what the truth is. So when we talked about the rubbish, if you if you pump a load of um, information, it predicts, it produces stuff. But then if you've got lots of AI producing lots of content on the internet, which feeds itself and is then the training data for new models, you can end up in a bit of a tricky loop and it's hard for users to work out what the truth is. So again, that's a problem for us to solve and I think we'll get there. Um, but it, it's even more behooves the person to be uh, discriminating and thoughtful about what you read, because it can, what you read can be fake. Uh, what you read, you really need to think what's true and what's not from first principles. And that's really, I think, has a lot of bearing on uh, on how you look at investing.
0: Well, that leads nicely into, uh, into our final topic, which is the uh, choice decision between active and passive investing. This, again, has been a topic that cropped up recently, I think, because 2022 was a year where active stock pickers for once did um, uh, rather better than those invested or those um, passive strategies that uh, that investors were using. So, um, I guess it would be helpful, Robert, to hear you talk about the, is this true, is actually active now a better place to be than passive? Uh, Is there that cyclicality in investing styles that, that, you know, lies behind that that question? And and I suppose also to help us think about the spectrum, because it's terribly easy to uh, posit there being uh, active versus passive. But as we know, there's a spectrum that links the two from from very, very uh, high conviction uh, stock pickers choosing a very, very small number of names, Across to uh, purely passive, which is, for example, market cap weighted. But actually, there are lots and lots and lots of iterations and choices in between. So, so what are your reflections on this? uh, And and where are we now? What is it that we're doing in practice as well? Mm.
1: Well, this has been quite a big debate over the last 10 years. And what we have seen, I think, is one big uh, long-term trend. And there is also now the cyclical element to it. So, on the long-term trend. Really, since, since the mid-90s in particular, um, we've seen this growth, uh, and really in the last 15 years even more so, we've seen the growth of passive investing, passive swallowing up uh, the market as it, as it seems. And you can always talk about extremes going from actually the market doesn't work if you're 100% passive and it doesn't work if you're really if you're 100% active. You do want some balance somewhere in between. So we need to work out how far along the trend uh, we we can move before it becomes an issue. Um, there was a lot of scope for passive to swallow up market share. And why was that? Because there were a lot of active funds, in inverted commas, which were really uh, sort of index huggers uh, in all but name. So, they held lots of stocks. They gave you index-like performance but had quite high fees. So, there was a lot of scope for what passive really is, is a low-cost and low-transaction way of investing uh, to take advantage. So, the growth of Vanguard iShares, swallowing up those, those sort of fake active uh, or low active share, um, active managers, uh, led for a lot of growth in, in, in passive investing. So that, that trend has certainly played out to a great degree and was, was a good news overall for investors because it reduces transaction costs. But I think if we define passive, that's quite important because it, it, it then reminds you that nothing is truly passive if we're thinking about it's a close your eyes, that's the way to invest. What is the market? There is no definition about all investable assets. There is always a choice at some degree, a choice about the index, uh, which companies you put in or not, which regions you're looking at. Um, And in many ways, ETFs now today are often used to create active portfolios. What you're doing is less active stock picking, but you're doing active choice on which regions, which factors you want exposure to. Do you want a US index? Do you want a European index? Um, So, there in a way, uh, it, it's not that the market is going passive, but just we're looking at maybe more macro factors uh, drive driving decisions. And indeed, there's a good bit of research put out by ASR, which did show this. I mean, since the mid-90s, when you look at, if you're saying there are the, the macro factors or the main three factors, which are common factors that drive all shares, what percentage of share price performance do they account for? And they've swallowed up a lot. Whereas they started a minority of performance, it's now a clear majority of performance. So, more of the market seems to be driven by those large macro factors than um, in the past. So, it's less of a stock picking market. So, so far, so bad for um, active investors. Now, you, you, there is still room for choice, as we've, we talked about. Um, but where did the dangers lie uh, in being passive? And, and this we comes to the sort of cyclical element, and something we've been talking about for a few years, is passive is not low risk. That's an important distinction. Passive is low transaction costs. There is still some turnover um, as as companies come in and out of indices. An example in recent years: think about Tesla going in or out of, well, in uh, into the S and P five hundred. Whether it eventually goes out is another another question. But uh, so, so you end up do you do buy new companies, but it's low transaction. It's the lowest transaction way of investing. Um, But the danger is, in terms of risk, is you end up being a momentum strategy. So you end up with higher and higher weight in the companies that do best. Uh, Now, that's great when the the market is trending. So the last 10 years, think of a QE-fueled, Bubble companies in the US going up, those large cap tech names swallowing uh, market share. you wanted to be exposed to the fangs. You wanted to be concentrated in the large uh, larger names. Um, passive in that way, market cap strategy does really well. But the danger is when you get to an extreme and you get to the turning points in markets, um, you're most exposed to the companies which are most expensive and most vulnerable to a correction. Uh, So, you end up with the fangs being more than, all those large few tech names being more than 30% of the S&P 500, even in fixed income. You end up with an index which is dominated by the countries which issue the most debt and you end up with longer and longer duration at exactly the moment when interest rates were lowest. So, at a turning point, you end up actually with a risky portfolio, which is why we positioned our portfolios and why we think on a cyclical basis active managers should do better at the turning points. That's the moment where actually the being not exposed to the, the winners of the past, but the winners of the future, when there's that mean reversion, that's a time you want to, to have a different exposure. So you don't just want market cap exposure at that period of time. So last year as an example, if you were underweight the big uh, big cap names and on the fixed income side, if you're underweight fixed income uh, and certainly underweight the, the bigger parts of uh, the, the bar cup ag, you really could outperform. And that's why we did see, on a cyclical basis, active managers doing better at one of these turning points. And we do believe um, that you do want to be exposed to active managers at this stage in the cycle, which is why we have more of our portfolio um, in those names for this period of time, does it mean the death of passive or, or ETFs? No, it certainly doesn't. There, there are time and space, space where you want more passive than active. But again, thinking back to that share market share, a lot of those closet active managers have gone. So the active managers that remain. Uh, the, sorry, the closet uh, index trackers have gone. The active managers that remain are truly more active. So not only is the environment better for them, but there's less competition. So it should be a, a very fertile period for, for an active manager. Um, so I think on a cyclical basis, active has a chance to to have a bit more of a, uh, a good performance. But by no means is it the end of um, sort of market cap weighted
0: uh, strategies. They can still be useful at the right period of time. And all this reminds me of a piece of work that we did at CapGen going back 15 years now. I'm horrified to say which we call first principles investing. And uh, and what it was trying to do was to tease out the, uh, the few key choices you make as an investor. And one of those we highlighted was the distinction between what we call discretionary and systematic investing. Uh, discretionary where it was really about human choice and judgment... Uh, and uh, systematic, which was a rules-based. Now, clearly, those rules are themselves the product of our thought and intellectual uh, endeavours, but you you put in place a set of rules and you follow them. So I think that's, in a way, the, the, the spectrum that we have, isn't it? The, the so-called passage, which, as you point out, are perhaps not quite as passive as you think, are really about rules-based investing. And and there can be moments, even at turning points, where rules-based investing is your friend uh, and it's not just about being discretionary. And I take as an example the uh, performance we saw last year from uh, the CTAs from what you might call sort of trend or momentum of following managers. So, these are these are uh, uh, investment strategies, alternative investment strategies, which are very rules-based. Um, but those rules are at your friend in times of turning point. Uh, that That's fair, isn't it, Robert?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, there, there, unfortunately, there, even with these uh, different choices of strategies, there is always an active element. And that's, I guess, part of the job that we, we're doing as well is, you don't want necessarily to be overweight these strategies the whole time. But at these particular moments, CTAs, futures trading managers do really well when equity markets are suffering and you have trending markets across commodities and uh, fixed income. So, being able to move your portfolio to be more overweight those at this period of time, or even last year when value does better against growth, you can... Uh, and we do within our portfolios have some exposure to systematic value but also some exposure to to active value because there are different ways to approach uh, uh approach these mispricings you want to capture some of the wide mispricings of value being cheap against growth across lots of different regions and sectors but equally there are some companies where when you look at the quant data they then look cheap but you need to be discretionary, dig under the surface, dig beneath the financials which hide those bargains, those cheap hidden assets, or uh, the cheap earnings that is being uh, uh, hidden because of uh, bad short-term performance. So, I think there is always, uh, you you do want balance between discretionary and systematic strategies. And there is an active choice about when you overweight one strategy versus another. So, it is important, I think, Balance, but also being a bit dynamic, which is hopefully what we try and do within within our portfolios.
0: And and it reminds us, I think, that investment is is uh, multidimensional or multi-factor. I think uh, we we see, and and, and understandably, we see in uh, popular media the idea that investment is really just a judgment about how much pressure you put on the accelerator. Uh, There's a time to push hard on the accelerator, and there's a time to come off. Uh, that is to say, there's only one dimension that you're managing, which is, call it speed, call it risk exposure. Um, and clearly that's important, but there's a whole lot of other things going on. I think when I think about investing, I think of it as a, as a, as a panel of dials, uh, and you are um, like a sound mixing machine where you are moving lots of different things at different times in order to achieve that, uh, that, that optimal outcome.
1: Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely true. I think the, you do want to exactly not think, to, you think in terms of what factors are important. So, I think you start with the big choices and you move down. Um, so, you don't want to be overwhelmed. But exactly, you don't want to be a sort of unidirectional. Risk on, risk off is a very dangerous way really to invest. It's the natural conclusion people reached in the last 10 years to a market seemingly driven by QE. But it's it's not the way to, to approach the markets we face alone. And to give a practical example, we see these big moves. Uh, December, the market's down a long way, this big rally in January. Um, it's very easy for investors. And I think one of the biggest dangers for this year, if we're, if we're thinking about the, the, the future, is Uh, A lot of investors have been parking their money in cash now yields are offering uh, above 4% uh, in in US dollars. So, it looks like an easy, safe alternative. And a lot of investors were thinking, bad times still to come. But if you do that binary, I'll put all my money into cash, when the market rallies a lot like it has in January that's the biggest risk to all those investors. It pulls you back in at the very worst moment because that fear of missing out suddenly catches up, catches up on you. Um, so I, and And then you invest at exactly the wrong moment when the earnings recession does come. So, I think that idea about balance, looking at different ways to have exposure is really important. So, that's how we position our portfolio so that actually they'll still – capture some of the upside if we do see markets continue to rally on the back of liquidity. But we've got protections in place um, so that we can protect against that future earnings recession. And I think that way of being invested in the market, not having to make those binary choices, is really crucial. And there are these other dials, as you mentioned, like dialing up active versus passive dialling up rest of the world um, against the US or dialling up value against growth, where you can add uh, incremental value for portfolios and, and be right on the whole, even if there are bits that you obviously at any moment in time, you can be wrong on.
0: Thank you, Robert. And thank you for joining us. If you did enjoy today's discussion and found it useful, please do subscribe to the podcast. Bye for now.